Lord Jesus, as we think of the circumstances in which that song was written, the great tragedy in our history 14 years ago, Lord, we pray that we can truly experience the truth of that song, that no matter what the storms are of our lives, no matter what storms people came in with today, no matter what has been removed from their life, the difficulties they may face, Lord, may there still be a song in their heart because of the presence of Jesus. Lord, there's someone in here who does not, at this moment, sense that presence, I pray that you'll be especially near to them in this time. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Helena, congratulations. I don't see Natasha here yet, but congratulations. We're proud of you. Can we affirm the young ladies again? Absolutely, if you haven't been baptized, no matter what age you are, whether you're younger or a little bit older, uh, absolutely, congratulations, Natasha. Absolutely the greatest decision that you can ever make. I hope that if there's someone in here who has not made that decision, that they will seriously ponder it today, and the witness of these two young ladies will, will stir up in you that, that desire to to make that public testimony of your commitment to Jesus Christ. We just praise the Lord for that. And uh, I thank you for being the first two baptisms since I've been here. So uh, I'll forever remember that right there, the first two baptisms. And so praise the Lord for, for, for them. I hope one day that uh, uh, our baptismal tank is full every week. Amen? So we pray for that day as well. And... Um, we look forward to that and that witness. And if you have the enthusiasm of these young girls or you have the enthusiasm of Elmer, man, he was singing with some enthusiasm, that, that hymn number one today. Uh, even, he even got his hand up here. Wasn't willing to go up here, but he got it right here. I saw him. Uh, we, we have that enthusiasm in our love for Jesus. I'm sure that we will see many come to know him and love him better. I was raised, as maybe some of you were, uh, a cultural Adventist before my parents went through their transformation that they've gone through. I was raised a cultural Adventist. Anyone understand or recognize that term, cultural Adventist? A few of you are nodding. A few of you are raising your hands. Uh, we were taught the basic tenets of the faith, a few things about what we believe. We went to Adventist schools. We, we occasionally went to church. Our church experience actually consisted of maybe at least, at least twice a month we went, and that was kind of our, our, our church experience. And these times of attending... Post the age of about 10 years old, we rarely attended Sabbath school, which I think is a real loss because Sabbath school is a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm actually getting to experience it through my boys at a better level, and I, so I'm going through all over again. You know, I, I went through Crater Roll, and you know, I didn't go as often as I should have when I was a kid, and so now I get to go every week with my boys, and eventually I'll get to the adult Sabbath school uh, one day, too. But we rarely attended Sabbath school. We would sneak in the back of the church during the first song, if you like this, and we would sneak out during the last song. That's how we would be. We usually chose the church that had the best preaching. My dad taught at Adventist universities uh, and Adventist colleges, Pacific Union College and Loma Linda University and in the Dayton area near Kettering. 
and we'd choose the church that had the best preaching, the best music, and typically we would choose the church that was the largest, which made it the best place in which to be anonymous. We didn't stay for potluck. We never, that I can recall, really had people over, and we rarely went to anyone's home. Even once I personally became a follower of Jesus, this kind of had been my routine, so this is what I got in, uh, into, this is what church was about. In a little late, out a little early. Best music, best preaching, biggest church, stay anonymous. The church became to me, thus church became to me about music, preaching, and being big. And then I got married. Then I got married, and suddenly, my wife in- introduced me to another idea, another aspect of how to choose a church. Christine and I were married in July of 2003, and then two weeks later, we moved to Berrien Springs, Michigan, where the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary is, and, and so we moved there to go to grad, I moved there to go to graduate school, and one Sabbath, not too long after we had been there, uh, we'd been there a few weeks, and one Sabbath, my wife said to me on Sabbath morning, why don't we go find a new church today? I thought this sounded like an absolutely ridiculous idea. I mean, I didn't know why, why she was saying this. As far as I was concerned, in Berrien Springs, Michigan, there was only one church to go to. And that was the Pioneer Memorial Church. It had all the qualifications I needed. The best preaching, Dwight Nelson. The best music, a nice mix of, of different types of music. And it was the biggest, 3,000 people. Christina didn't disagree with any of these points, and yet she added a fourth element that I had never thought about before. Christina said, but I'd like to go someplace where we can get to know the people. Christina introduced me to a new element in choosing a church, koinonia. The Bible refers to it as koinonia, also known as fellowship. And I've come to learn over the years that, that, that Christina's element of choosing a church, this koinonia, this relationship, is biblical, while mine isn't. Did you know it's not biblical to choose a church based on the best preaching or the best music or where you can be the most anonymous? Did you know that's not biblical? That's not a biblical reason to choose a church, but koinonia is one of those reasons. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're in the same chapter and the same verses we were in last week. Acts chapter 2. We are once again beginning in verse 40. Acts chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament. If you go about three quarters of the way through in your Bible, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 40. Peter is just finishing up his powerful sermon at Pentecost. Holy Spirit-driven sermon. People are, are inspired with these words. And in verse 40, he ends the sermon with these words. Be saved from this perverse generation. And then verse 41 tells us, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Folk, I asked you all to pray for something last week. I asked you to pray when we read that text last week that that God would add unto us such a number that we could not take one bit of credit for it. Amen? 
We want that type of a revival within our church. You may look around here right now and say, well, where are we going to put all these people? Well, you know, we have a first service where there's a few less than, than are in here at this time. And we can always add other services. I got a strong voice. In, in California, I preach three times every Sabbath, so I, I'm, I, I can roll with that. But we could add unto those people, so we want to pray for that type of revival, that Holy Spirit revival. And I hope you've been doing that this week. It says 3,000 were added to them. Then the first descriptors of this new mega church in Jerusalem, this, this large church in Jerusalem, this church full of revival, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I hope that is going well for you. I hope you've been continuing steadfastly in the word of God this week. Remember we said start, start even just with 15 minutes a day. And then grow from there. And if you're, if you're having a hard time getting into that or, or you've struggled with that this week, don't worry about it. Just start again. Start anew today. And if you struggle today, start anew tomorrow. Just, just make that commitment to be in the Word of God, to spend time in the Word of God, getting to know Jesus through the Word of God. So this is the first descriptor. But the second and third descriptor of this church experiencing revival, they go together. The Bible says, and they continued in, in the apostles' doctrine, but then they continued in koinonia, which is the word for fellowship, and in the breaking of bread. One of the very first descriptors of the early church, this very large church, was their interconnectedness, their koinonia, their fellowship. There was nothing about preaching. There was nothing about the music, though I would guess that it wasn't bad. There is something about the size. It says it was at least 3,000 people we know of. And yet, yet soon, after he soon after Luke mentions the size, he shows us clearly that the size was not for the sake of anonymity. Because he talks about them having fellowship. It's di immediately dispelled with the descriptor koinonia. Which would tell me the way I wanted to choose a church when Christine and I first got married, is not nearly as important as the way Christina wanted to choose a church. Some of you may have chosen this church because you like the preaching, Pastor Lutz's preaching. Some of you may have chosen this church because you've enjoyed the music. The truth is that many people do choose a church based on these things. Some people even do choose a church based on the size. I can be anonymous I can come in and come out. I don't really have to get involved. I've chosen church for these reasons over the years. But I've learned in my ministry, I've learned in my ministry that while people may choose a church for the music or the preaching or the size, that people stay in churches and people become active in churches and people become invested in churches and people become supportive of churches financially and, and emotionally and with their, with their physical gifts based on the koinonia, the fellowship that they experience within that church. They may choose it because of the preaching or, or the music or the size, but they will stay and they will become invested based on the relationships that they made. Christianity Today reported on our church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, just back in 2013. In 2013, you may remember that there was an article in USA Today that said that we were one of the fastest growing denominations in North America. Any of you remember that article? A few of you remember it? And a lot of us did this. Oh, we're so good. Thank you. Oh, great. We're so great. We're growing at 1.43%, which is better than, or any other church, but, but not that great. 
and, and we patted ourselves on the back. But also in 2013, not only did this article from USA Today come out, but an article from Christianity Today came out as well. And in this article from Christianity Today, they reported on, yes, they are, one of the, they are baptizing uh, more than any other church. But they reported that out of 100 people, every 100 people that we baptize in our church, 43 leave. 43. That means more than one in three individuals that we baptize leave our church every year. Why? Well, according to an official document put out by the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the reasons most often cited by those who leave a local church fellowship are found, and I quote, this is straight from the document that was released, in the realm of relationships, the absence of a sense of belonging and the lack of meaningful engagement in the local congregation and its mission. Y'all, people leave churches not because of our doctrine. People do not leave churches because they don't like the music. People do not leave churches because they don't like the preaching, but because they don't engage relationally. And when they don't engage relationally, they don't embrace the mission. And when they don't embrace the mission, then church seems to lose its purpose and importance. Let me explain what I mean. What is the mission of our church? Really, our church and any church, this should be the mission. To make Jesus better known and to make Jesus better loved. That should be the purpose of all churches. The three angels' message, to make Jesus better known and to make Jesus better loved. The great commission, to make Jesus better known, to make Jesus better loved. This is the purpose of every church. This should be the purpose of every single church. Well, how can we help people to know what our mission is? Well, when they look at our church, do they see a group of disciples that are embracing such a mission? Do they see a group of people that, that are living out such a mission? How do people know who the disciples are and who to watch and who to see what the mission is. I'm glad that you asked. Turn with me to the book of John, chapter 13. Just one book before the book of Acts. If you're in the book of Acts right now, just one book back before in the book of Acts. John chapter 13 and verse 35. People aren't connecting to the mission. What is your mission? To make Jesus better known and better loved. How do we do this? By being true disciples. Well, how do we know who the disciples are? The very words of Jesus, John chapter 13 and verse 35, probably many of you know this verse. By this, all will know that you are my, what? Disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Can I tell you something, y'all? One of the reasons our church is bleeding its young people is because they don't see a movement of people and they don't see a movement greater than themselves. They don't see a group of people that are so passionate and so loving and such committed disciples that they say, that's a movement that I want to be a part of. They don't see a movement greater than themselves and that's one of the reasons why our young people are, are exiting our church in mass quantity. Have you been following the news in the last few weeks? Have you seen on the news? I've been listening on the, on the radio and I've, I've been reading on the internet different articles and I've, and I've been listening as I've heard this term over and over again. You may have heard this term, homegrown terrorists. Anyone else heard that term in the last few weeks as, as people are reflecting on what's happened in, in Paris and, and some of the things happening around our world? People are talking about this idea of, 
of homegrown terrorists. And over and over again, in the articles that I read, in the news stories that I hear, experts and psychologists say that the reason there are so many homegrown terrorists is because the extremist end of the Muslim faith appeals to disenfranchised young people that want to be part of a cause, want to be part of something bigger than themselves. So evil is attracting these people because they say, this is something bigger than you. Come be a part of a movement. Come be a part of something spectacular. Y'all, when I was a kid, I can relate to this somewhat, not the evil part of it, but, but I can relate to this idea of wanting to be a part of something bigger than myself. When I was a kid, I, I would listen to my dad tell me stories about uh, when he was younger and he would go down to Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco and sit in the park and, and do nefarious things that they would do in the park. And, uh, and he would tell me stories about going to the Fillmore and listening to, to Janis Joplin and and all, and, and all these different groups, and, and they, uh, they would come in, the, the musicians would just walk off the stage and sit down amongst the people and hang out with them as they were, as they were doing their drugs and whatever else they were doing. And my dad told me about wearing a, a, a hose for a belt and, and that he like refused to cut his hair so that he could have his picture in the local uh, paper and all these things. And I remember thinking, this is so cool. The reason I thought it was so cool is not just because my dad like is now a very proper individual, but uh, I love those stories because they symbolize to me this, this idea of a countercultural movement. And as a kid, I thought, man, that's awesome. There was, there was this movement of young people changing history. Now, some of the changes that they made I no longer love, but at the time I thought, man, this is cool. I've been a lover of history ever since I can remember. I love the history and the, and the years leading up to, to, to the great movement of our, of our revolution against England. Some may call it a rebellion against England. The stories, I love the stories of the great migration west. I've read several books on Lewis and Clark, and I've read the diaries of, of Lewis and Clark, and I love reading these stories about, about people that just gave up everything to, to, to set out on a journey and do something amazing that had never been done before. A movement across the country. Martin Luther King Jr. is one of my heroes. And, and, and as I, I love to listen to him every year, I go back and I listen to some of his sermons and some of his speeches. And I think about how this man, uh, through, through his, his sheer determination, and I believe also the grace of God, helped change a culture in the southern part of the United States and around our country. I love the history of our early church as I read about these teenagers that, that were meeting together and developing doctrine. I love reading about the years prior to and just after 1888 and the struggle that went on and, and some people that were determined to no longer be as dry as the hills of Gaboa but wanted to live with righteousness by faith. I love reading about the early days of HMS Richards when the church tried to discourage him from going on the radio and yet he continued to push forward saying this is the movement that is coming and had the first nationally aired radio, uh, religious radio program in this nation. Why? My interest in all this started when I was young because I wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. And guess what? Now I get to be part of something bigger than myself. And so do each one of you. 
The young realize it. The young realize that they want to be part of something larger and bigger than themselves. Probably some of us that have gotten older, we don't realize it as much. But I believe it is still in each and every one of us. A desire to be part of something that matters. A desire to be part of something that, that isn't just all about us and our little world. A, a desire to, to, to see the world change through not only ourselves, but the group we're a part of, our participation. Is there anything more countercultural? Is there anything more life-changing than being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Nothing. Look at the news. Look at the, the media. Look at the, 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 the content of information that is out there. There is nothing more countercultural than being a disciple of Jesus Christ. This movement, this movement should be the most attractive thing to people looking for something that is greater and bigger than themselves. But why isn't it? Why isn't it? Because we don't have the koinonia. We don't have that fellowship that, that demonstrates. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do people know where the movement's at? There's only one thing Jesus says will clearly define this movement, that you have love one to another. The second description of a church experiencing a revival in the book of Acts, a church that was countercultural, a church that was a, that was a life-changing movement was Koinonia. They fellowshiped, they loved and spent time with one another. They worked on loving each other. How do I know this? Well, the Koinonia part is easy. That, the, the word means fellowship, so we know that they fellowship together. But more than just having fellowship together, they worked on, on loving one another. The Bible says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread. Did you hear that? There's a statement in there that demonstrates, that illustrates to us that they were working on having intimacy. They were working on loving one another. This is intense stuff. How do I know? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and koinonia, fellowship. And here is this, this phrase that illustrates their, their desire to, to have love and intimacy amongst one another. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and koinonia, fellowship. And here it is, in the breaking of bread. All these people were steadfast in eating together. Let me say this, you may never have heard this before. One of the signs of a church experiencing revival is a church and people within the church that eat together. Did you know that? Amen. Are you Hispanic? No? <laughs> There's a lot of cultures that figured it out a long time before us white folk did. This is one of the signs of a church experiencing revival. You may think that sounds crazy, but, but I believe it to be absolutely true. And I want you all to see something. I want you to see what this is. Turn to the last book in your Bibles, the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 20. Probably many of you have memorized this text. This is one of the most beloved texts in all of Scripture. It is a, 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 a text that, that illustrates that that illuminates, that, that communicates God's love and passion for us. It's a, it's a tender text that shows the heart and the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter three and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the what? Door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and what? Sup with him or dine with him or eat with him and he with me. This is one of the most beloved and quoted passages in all of scripture to show the love of God. I have this picture seared into my brain of, of Jesus standing there at the door and knocking. Some of you may have had the same picture when you were a kid. Uh, I, I remember it's like a door that looked like a Martin Luther kind of door and there was kind of a, a bush or something up here uh, behind Jesus and Jesus is standing there kind of in the, in the dim light of outside the door and he's standing at the door knocking. Any of you remember that picture? You might have that picture hanging in your door as well. That picture seared into my brain of this loving Savior knocking at the door. But Jesus doesn't conclude with just him knocking at the door. What does he use to illustrate the point? What does he use to illustrate the point of the intimacy that he wants to have with us? He says, if you open the door, I will come in and what? Dine with you. I will sup with you. I will eat with you. What? So, so eating was a symbol of intimacy, of, of getting of growing closer in relationship with one another. Jesus says, I love you so much if you just open up the door of your heart, if you will just let me in, if you will just let me know you, I'll, I'll, I'll eat with you. What a beautiful passage. What a beautiful passage. In the Bible, to eat with someone was an intimate act. What did, the, what did the Pharisees get mad at Jesus for? Do you remember? The book of Mark chapter two and verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he what? Eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. They didn't say why is he talking to them or why is he hanging out with them or why does he say hello? They said why does he eat with them? Why? Because eating in the Bible, in the biblical culture was, was this action of intimacy and, and love. Eating is an intimate act. What is the event that Jesus asks us to participate in to remember him? He says, he says to us, till I come, I want you to do something together so that you'll remember my, my life, my death, and my resurrection. There's, there's something I want you to do together with one another on a regular basis so that you'll remember how much I love you, that I live for you, that I died for you, that, I, that I've been raised for you, that I'm coming back for you. What is this one thing that he wants us to do to remember all these things? What is it? The Lord's Supper. He wants us to eat together. He says when you get together for... To eat together, remember that I lived for you, I died for you, that I'm coming again for you, that I was raised and I'm coming again for you. Remember how much I love you. Remember my great sacrifice. How? With a meal, with the eating together. Eating with one another is intimate. It still is. It still is intimate. Christina hates it when I say this, tell you this, but I'm gonna tell you it anyways because I just am real like that. So just... Uh, Get used to me saying things that you think, I can't believe he says that in public. Um, when I was in college, uh, I went out on dates. Any of you else go out on dates when you were in college? A few of you? Some of you shook your head no. I just, I hope that was by choice. Anyways, I went out on some dates when I was in college. Sometimes, you know, it'd be one of those things where, where someone say, oh, this, this girl 
that's kind of interested in you and would like to go out on a date or whatever, and, or, hey, I have this friend, would you go out with her or whatever? And so, you know, if I didn't know him that well or if I thought, you know, I, I've kind of seen that girl. I, I think she's cute. Maybe I like her. But I didn't know her that well or I didn't know, know if I really liked her that much. I would take her to just a movie. Why? Because if the conversation from Southern's dorm to the movie theater wasn't that interesting, at least I had the, the movie to entertain me for two hours, right? <laughs> I'm just being honest, okay? But if I liked a girl, but if I knew that I was really interested in a girl, she would get a dinner and a movie. Guess what Christina got? I took her to Blimpies. I didn't say it had to be an expensive meal. I just, I'm cheap, but I took her to Blimpies. For those of you who are like, what's Blimpies? We never ate at Blimpies. It's what us poor folk eat at, sub food, sub what, subs. I think it's closed down. That's how awesome it was. When we care about someone, we eat with them. There's something intimate about eating with someone. This is still true today. This is still true today. You know, studies have shown that, that eating with someone or families that eat together are healthier. Families that eat together are healthier. According to numerous studies, including one at, at Rutgers University that was done a, a, a while back, showed that if showed that if, family, if kids ate with their parents just five meals a week, only five meals a week, if we eat three meals a day, three times seven, I, I can do this math at least, that's 21. I was never very good at math, but I can do that. Three times seven is 21. If you only eat five meals a day, if, a week, Whatever. <laughs> if we only, if kids only eat five meals a week with their parents, they're less likely to have weight problems. They're less likely to get to abuse alcohol or drugs. They're less likely to have premarital sex. They do better academically than their peers that eat less than five meals a week with their family. Can I tell you why? Because eating with someone builds love, it builds respect, and these kids, as their love and their respect for their parents grows, more and more they also feel more secure in their relationship with their parents, thus they don't want or feel the need to do some of these things. So my parents, I don't know what to do. I'm worried about how I'm raising my kids. Maybe just have a few more meals with one another. I'll give you the perfect illustration. This is, my, this is my own life. I almost never ate meals with my family. We just didn't. Growing up, we just did not eat meals. My dad is a workaholic. Uh, he's doing much better now, but he's a workaholic. My mom is kind of a workaholic as well. It runs in our family. It's one of the things I'm praying about as I move out here. Don't be a workaholic. But, but my, my, so we just didn't really eat meals together. My wife, on the other hand, 
She would be up at the school for some event. Her mom would call her up at the school and say, you got to make sure you're home for dinner. Mom, you know, we have a football game at 6. It's just easier for me to stay up here. Her mom said, no, you're coming home to eat dinner. We eat dinner every night together. Me, through my life, I had struggles with academics. I had struggles with drugs. I had struggles with girls. I had all those struggles. My wife, who ate probably more than five meals a week with her family, has walked with Jesus every day of her life. Amen? Uh, obviously, you could say, well, I know an example. Well, I'm saying overall, the, the general rule is, is that they'll do better. Why? Because this eating together builds intimacy. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for one another. How do we show that we are Jesus' disciples, for one, our, uh, disciples, our love for one another? How does that happen through koinonia, through fellowship? How do we build that fellowship? Where according to this early church, this may sound like the strangest big idea you've ever heard in a sermon before, but here is my big idea for the sermon. A healthy church that wants to experience revival, the members will break bread with one another. That's my big idea for this sermon. So if you get nothing else, you can write that down. My big idea for this sermon is a church that wants to experience revival, a church that, that wants to be at its healthiest place, will have people in it that break bread together. That break bread together. Christine and I have been feeling very, very loved in this church. Very loved in this church. You know why? We literally are having our calendar booked for meals on a weekly basis. And at times when we don't have a, a meal booked to eat with somebody, people are bringing food over to our house that they've, that they've made for us. It's helped us as we've left our family out in California to feel like we have family here too. Why? Because there's an intimacy that grows as you sit down together and eat with one another. The koinonia that happens through, through meals builds our love with our, with our church family, with, with you. And I love the invites. We don't want you to stop the invites. I don't want you to stop feeding us. I like to be fed. <laughs> but y'all, what if I wasn't the pastor? What if we were just a new anonymous family in a big church? What if I was someone that was taken away from home for one reason or another? What if I was a, a truck driver and, I was, and Christina was a working mom with, with three small boys to feed when I was out on the road? Would she still have meals? Would she still have invites to restaurants and to homes? on a regular basis. Now don't feel guilty for loving on us. You can keep loving on us. But let's just think for a minute. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Not just love for the pastor, all right? Not just love for the pastor. In fact, as I read the text, it doesn't say if you have love for your leader, then everyone will know you're my disciples. That person sitting behind you that you don't know, 
a person sitting in front of you that you wish would sit still so that you didn't have to go like this. That person that sits to the left and right of you every week that, that you give the perfunctory greeting to each week. What about the names in the bulletin that pop up every, every few weeks for transfers? Do we call the office and say, hey, can I get that person's information so that I can have them over? Are, are all of us, not just a couple of us, some of you are sitting there saying, yeah, we do that. But are all of us actively doing that, being regularly engaged in, hey, can I get that person's information so I can break bread with these people? I've had the office call me, hey, Chad, can we give your number to so-and-so? They'd like to bring you something. Can we, can we give your number to so-and-so? They want to have you over for this. Praise the Lord. But, but do we do that when we see so-and-so's transferring from wherever? And we're like, who's that? I don't know who that is. Part of a revival is koinonia through, yes, I believe this to be absolutely true, through eating together, through eating together. Pull out your connection cards. Pull out your connection cards, the cards that you got hopefully when you came in. If you didn't get one, if you'll just raise your hand high and we will get you one. Raise your hand up high. Deacons, if you'll stand and make sure that we get those to them. And I think I left mine on the front row. Marilyn, can you grab me one? Or someone, thank you. If you fill these out week after week, go ahead and just put your name in there. If you have new information, like a new email, raise your hands up if you don't have one. I want everyone to have one. We want everyone to eat together. Alina right here doesn't have one in the front row. Let's make sure she gets one. Thank you, Junior. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it, guys. Appreciate you bringing these down. But you can just go ahead and fill out your name. If you're a guest here, we'd love to be able to connect with you and be able to say thank you for coming, so please uh, uh, fill out as much information as you're comfortable with giving us. You can turn these in at the back door on the way out. The deacons will be out there with a plate, or you can uh, turn them in at the Welcome Center. But there on the back side, we have first, I'm interested in, that box, be, beginning a relationship with Jesus. I just want to say this right now. Jesus is standing at the door of every heart in this room that has not opened their heart to him, and he's knocking, and he's knocking. And he's knocking. And he says, if you open that door, I love you so much, I want to come in and I want to eat with you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you open the door of your heart, Jesus wants to eat with you. He wants to spend intimate time with you. He wants to get to know you and connect with you. You want information on baptism. You want to follow the Weber sisters' example. And more importantly, you want to follow the example of Jesus in baptism. Please check that. Information on church membership, receiving baptismal studies, serving on a team at Spencerville. But for today's sermon, my next step today is responding to the sermon. First of all, the message today was clear. If you think it was clear, if you fell asleep when I said the big idea is this, let me say it one more time. The big idea is that a church experiencing revival, a church, a healthy church will be a church that eats together. The message today was clear. I want to be a part of a church that will be known for its koinonia. It's nice to be known for a lot of other things, but I want to be part of a church that is known for its koinonia. Number three, I will be more intentional about building fellowship with individuals within our church. 
You all have heard me preach evangelistic sermons and talk about we need to be connecting with those outside of our church. I absolutely believe that's true. I hope every single one of you is praying about people that you can invite to church, that is speaking with people and engaging people in the community and in your workplace and in your neighborhood and saying, hey, come come to my church or, or come to my house and let's, let's hang out, let's do something. But the truth of the matter is, is that if we bring a bunch of people in here and they see a bunch of people that don't exist and operate in fellowship, those people will look and the majority of those people will go right back out the door. Because the world is looking for a place where they'll feel loved, where they'll feel cared about. And they'll determine that on if they see a church loving and caring about one another. So I'll be more intentional about building fellowship with individuals within our church. And then the fourth one, I will look for an individual or family I do not yet know to break bread with, to eat with. Now let me say this, some of you are like, oh, well we don't know you, pastor, we can have you over too. No, yes, you can have me over, but have someone else first. Have someone else first. By this all men will know you're my, you are my disciples if you have love one to another. I will look for an individual family I do not yet know to break bread with, whether it be Take them to a meal during the week, you go out to a restaurant during the week, or a Sabbath afternoon, you have them over to your house for a meal, whatever it may be. I want to encourage you all to take that step of faith today. And as we close, as we close, I hope that each and every one of us will remember this, that the reason we do this is because long before Jesus ever asked us to extend the hand of fellowship to someone else. He extended the hand of fellowship to each and every one of us. Long before, long before Jesus asked you to be nice to someone else, to get into a relationship with someone else, Jesus showed you kindness and love and sought a relationship with you and with me. We do this because we are greatly loved by a great and mighty Savior. And we want to respond with equal love for our family that sits next to us each and every Sabbath. Let us pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that you have extended the hand of fellowship to us. I thank you that, that you desire to eat with us. Lord, we're even told in the scriptures that you will not partake of the bread and the juice again until you do so with us in the kingdom of heaven. I thank you, Jesus, for calling us to eat with one another, to live in fellowship and koinonia with one another. And as we do so, may we experience the love of Jesus and may others see that we are truly your disciples and join this movement. In your name we pray, amen.